0: If you want to get back towards your general seating area here, we'll get started. All right, how's everyone doing this morning? God of new faces, so if you can, we're going to have some pizza. Stick around for the, the pizza event. You get to talk to me, which is not very exciting. But you also get to t- talk with Zach. And Zach's more exciting. Um, <laughs> nominally, nominally so. But you put it together, and it's almost a worthwhile event. So, no, uh, we would appreciate getting to know you guys a little better. Um, I'm Pastor Chris. We've been working through the book of Joshua here. And one of the things we do, if you are new, is that we generally... Stand to read God's word honor that it's his words and not ours. So if you would, turn, click, swipe, or tap, or whatever you do to get to Joshua chapter 10. If you need a Bible, just kind of discreetly throw your hand in the air, and someone will bring you one that you can keep, take home with you if you like, or just borrow for the morning. And we will go to Joshua 10 and read that together. You guys want to stand up? A little bit of a longer passage, so bear with me, but it's, uh, it's exciting stuff. Joshua chapter 10. As soon as Adonai king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king, as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I, and all its men were warriors. So Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Yarmuth, to Yaphia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Betharon and struck them as far as Azekah and Machidah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Bethoran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the, to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, sun stands still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of ayalon And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Yahshua? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave of Machedah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Machedah. And Joshua said, roll large stones over the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Machedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmouth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with them, with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remained to this very day. As for Machedah, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it, and its king, with the edge of the sword, he devoted to destruction every person in it. left none remaining. And he did to the king of Machedad just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Machedad to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish. And laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. And he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it, as he had done to Libna. And then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish. And Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon. And they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining, as he had done to Eglon, and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it. And he captured it with its kings and all its towns, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libnah and its king, so he did to Debir and its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negeb and the lowland and the slopes and all of their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Let's pray. Father, as we look at really long passages of Scripture with so many details and names and places from history, and it can be difficult to keep everything straight, and we pray, God, that you would keep our minds clear and, and unclouded as we work through a large chunk of material together. God, speak to us your words, not my own, and may you be with us and give us encouragement through this passage. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I think that is the Longest passage we've gone through to the to date. Uh, they're going to get shorter again. Uh, and originally, I was going to break this chapter into two passages. And and the more I looked at this chapter, the more I realized they really belong together. Uh, and I know so a lot of your Bibles maybe have a, a subheading, uh, a couple of different points in this chapter. But I really. They go together, and we're going to talk about that. We've got a really interesting passage here, and we've got lots of of cities, we've got lots of regions, we've got lots of names of kings. It is really hard to keep all this stuff straight, and this is one area. I mean, you're, when you're, anytime you're reading the the Bible, but especially some of these passages in the Old Testament, I cannot encourage enough. I mean, you're just for your personal study, um, online or or buy a, a book, get a good atlas. Get a really good Bible atlas. Because some of these things are just very difficult to understand or put together until you see them. And you, and you see what they're trying to accomplish and what they're trying to do. And in fact, this is one such passage that makes a lot of sense in the context. You see, this is the general region of the world that we're talking about, especially for those of you who, who weren't here uh, before. We've got the the Middle East up there and and the area that we're focused on, Palestine, Israel, Canaan is on that uh, eastern bank of the Mediterranean Sea. And what we've got going on in this this passage is uh, a pattern that we've seen throughout the book of Joshua. Uh, First of all, word about Israel and Joshua has spread again. This time it's to uh, Adonizedek, the king of Jerusalem. And this might be coincidence, but this is, a, this is interesting to me. As I was reading this, I noticed Adonizetic. What does that sound? It sounds familiar to me. And go back to Genesis. Go back to when, when God is first drawing a people to himself in the person of, of Abraham. You might remember a story of Abraham going to battle against many of the Canaanite kings. And after that battle, he meets the king of Salem, Melchizedek, Melchizedek, this is Adonai, Zedek, Melchizedek is king of righteousness, Salem uh, is peace, became Jerusalem, city of peace, it's the same city, and now it's being ruled by a guy named Lord of Righteousness, so there's probably some sort of uh, connection there. Uh, we don't know the the chain, but it's, it's an ironic thing because Melchizedek, if you remember the story, was priest of the Most High God. And when Abraham met uh, Melchizedek after the, the battles and after the wars, uh, Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, blesses Abraham, the progenitor of God's people, the Israelites. And now this Lord of Righteousness, Adonai is under God's curse and is going to be wiped out by God's people, the Israelites. So there's a little bit of a, an irony there. This time, at uh, Zedek, he's heard about what Israel has done and, and what he's up to. The last time that happened, Gibeon, the city of Gibeon, fled to Israel in fear for their lives. They put on a game. They put on a ruse. They pretended to be from a long way away and convinced Israel to make a treaty with them, make a covenant with them. To spare their lives. And even though it was an unwise thing for Israel to do. We found that that God used that to bring worshipers to himself. To bring a people into the people of God. Who otherwise were destined for destruction. This is what our God is up to. He is up to rescuing people from the destruction we rightly deserve. And bringing them to himself. And he even used Israel's fallen fallibleness to to bring a group of worshipers from Gibeon to himself. So that was the way they responded. But when the king of Jerusalem heard the latest news that Gibeon had joined Israel in entreaty, in he is fearful. He feared greatly. And he he fears because this city is significant. It's described with, with four different phrases here. It was a great city, so it was significant, it was important, it was maybe rather large by comparison, keeping in mind that large cities in the, in the ancient Near East uh, rarely got into five figures, you know, six figures would have been an extraordinarily large city, so we're still, Cleveland would be the largest city in the ancient Near East, all right, and we, we think of Cleveland as just kind of a, a moderate-sized city. So you got to change your perspective a little bit. But this was a very, very important city. It was like one of the royal cities. In other words, it was like a city that had a king. Interesting. Gibeon must not have had a king. But in general, a, a city that had a strong king could maybe control some region of land around itself. And, and that was usually the exclusive domain of a, a city that had a strong king, strong leader, conquering lands and able to kind of Put a little barrier between their own stronghold and the strongholds of other kings around them. And Gibeon had apparently, was, it was strong enough that it was able to accomplish that without having a king. Um, and so this is a very, very significant city. It was greater than Ai. And, and we, we talked about Ai a number of weeks ago. And Ai was, was not a huge city, but we think it may have been a, a sort of a fortress, an outpost of Bethel. And, and so it was kind of a fortified encampment where the warriors would be. Um, and so even though it might not have been huge, it was strong. And all its men were warriors, which might be a little bit of hyperbole. But the basic idea here is this is a city that you don't want to mess with. And now they are allied with this force that is marching through the land and taking land left and right. And so this is reason to be concerned. It's quite possible, based on the geography and how concerned they are about Gibeon, that maybe Gibeon had been considered an ally of, of Jerusalem and some of these other cities. We don't know for sure, um, but this is definitely greeted as bad news for the king of Jerusalem. So we want to bring up that, that second map here we'll kind of orient uh, ourselves in this region a little bit more. I don't know if you're able to bring that up, Matt? Because Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, he's going to send to four other kings, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmuth, the king of Glakish, and the king of Eglon. And I know these are kind of, back up just one map real quick to kind of, to get a little bit blown up overview of the land. Um, And I know it's kind of small, but kind of give you an idea, the big body of water right in the center of the screen is the Dead Sea, they came across the Jordan River, which is that stream between the two bodies of water in the middle of your stream Stream. they came across there you can see Jericho where they had their first battle um, you can see uh, barely but you can see Gilbal, Gilgal you can see Bethel you can see Ai you can see Gibeon and you see its proximity to Jerusalem there and then if you go to the next map you can see um, I'm not expecting you guys to be able to see everything going on here But what I do want to point out is if you can make out Jerusalem there on the northern part of the Dead Sea and then go left a little bit, you can see there's a mountain range. There's a mountain range that kind of runs down through central Palestine, through central Israel, through central Canaan. And they're really right at the the tops of this mountain range. Right in the center of the mountain range is where uh, Jerusalem is and Gibeon's not too far off from this. And, And so these cities are, are significant that they're talking about here. Um, presumably these cities that he sends to were cities that they were already on good terms with. Um, and for whatever reason, they've decided that their best idea is to attack Gibeon. Maybe it's because they had been allied with Gibeon and they felt this was a, a traitorous move on their part. And and so they've become public enemy number one. Maybe they thought it was a better strategy to attack Gibeon. Israel is super strong. Let's, Let's knock off the weaker piece so that at least when we deal with Israel, it's not as bad. But whatever the reason, whatever the idea here, they decide to encamp against Gibeon and try to take it out. And the concern here from the standpoint of Jerusalem is that there is a major highway that would go from Jerusalem down to Hebron and it would take you all the way to Egypt if that's where you wanted to go. From uh, Hebron to Lachish is considered to be probably one of the most important highways in that region of the world at the time in terms of you wanted to get up and down that mountain range. In other words, Jerusalem at this point was the entrance point for israel to all points south if jerusalem falls the south and the and the west of this whole land is at their mercy and so you might think of this as jerusalem is sort of the last major battle before they can have it all and the king of jerusalem sees that he's worried he calls down to his friends to the south and to the west. And they really, they make almost a, a ring blocking off the south and the west of cities that would have been concerned about this movement of Israel. And they're going to flock up to Jerusalem to do battle with the idea of saving their lives. You can take the, the map off for now. They encamp against Gibeon which probably means siege warfare. We've talked about this briefly before but the basic idea is that you're going to block off all points of entry and points of exit from the city. And you're going to sit there days, weeks, months, however long it takes until that city begins to run out of provisions, runs out of food, runs out of water. The people start to starve. They start to have famine. They, they die of, of dehydration and exhaustion. The things that they need to survive they can't get. And then when the city is weak, then you go in and attack. It was a strategy that you would use on a stronger opponent. A weaker opponent, there's risks involved with a siege. And one of the risks is going to happen for them because one of the risks of a siege is that while you are staying there waiting outside the walls an enemy's city, you have to Spread your troops out. You have to be on all sides of the city. And if that particular city has any allies, those allies could come at you from any direction. So there's risks involved with it, but when a strong city is involved, like Gibeon, that you think maybe you can't take one-on-one, you're going to wear it down, starve it, weaken it, make it an easy target. That's what they're done Well, apparently their siege wasn't very effective. Or at least it wasn't as effective as they would have liked it to have been. And and so you see in verse 6, the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Whatever the method is, uh, Gibeon has got a messenger out. Um, How they got through the siege isn't described, but sieges weren't perfect, like I said. And the ancient world was incredibly adept at intelligence gathering, espionage, signaling. All of these were tactics that would have been used in the ancient Near East to get a message out. And so there were ways, and they got the message to Joshua. They've recently made a treaty. They've recently made a pact with Joshua. And the Israelites saying that we are going to be part of you. We are going to be your servants. You protect us, and we do your bidding. And now this treaty is going to be put to the test. Well, there's not much of a test because it's a no-brainer for Israel. Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. They heard the request, they honor the treaty, they go. No questions, no ifs, ands, or buts. We talked about this last week that Clearly, in in God's economy, keeping their oath to the Gibeonites, keeping their word to the Gibeonites was was more important than, than executing justice on the Gibeonites. And so they've entered into a pact with them, and they are going to uphold their word. And so they go. And the Lord speaks to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. Joshua opts for a night march. It's a little bit riskier strategy, but it has the advantage from an ancient Near Eastern warfare standpoint of catching your enemy off guard. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 10, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. We don't know. Uh, all the details of what caused that, but imagine you're encamping, you've been engaged in siege for a number of days against your enemy. You wake up in the morning and there is an opposing army in the midst on the horizon. That's not exactly what you want to see over breakfast, right? And so there's there's probably this moment of panic and this moment of, of scared uh, ness and a moment of realization that things are about to turn really bad. What happens next, though, in this passage is where this passage kind of splits in two different directions. And what it, it gives us is really kind of two different windows about what happens. It's going to give us uh, a window um, in the first the next six verses, and then the rest of the chapter kind of presents a second picture of what's going on here. And this first window the passage gives us is sort of a view of the battle from God's perspective. It's sort of the view from heaven. Because you hear in verse 10, listen, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel who struck them with a great blow. Yahweh caused them to go into panic and maybe the immediate proximate cause was waking up and seeing the enemy on the horizon but the author is really clear here that whatever the human means were involved it was God's doing Yahweh threw them into a panic in the middle of that verse you see who and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon uh, at least in the English standard version that's the translation your translation might be different and and that's trying to capture a really awkward phrase there in the Hebrew but the but the original word there is is he not who it's it's he and, and the most literal way of interpreting it is the lord threw them into a panic before israel He, that is the Lord, Yahweh, struck them with a great blow at Gibeon. And Yahweh chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran. And Yahweh struck them as far as Azekah and Machedah. Because those things kind of, in a way, literally happened in the the armies of Israel, it, it feels a little bit more natural to maybe say, well, maybe he here means who, but I think, no, this is, this is the view of this battle from heaven. Yahweh is at work here. Whatever the human agency that is involved here, it is Yahweh that is at war. It is Yahweh who is at work. And the people of God are his instrument, are his tool And the next verse tells us that God threw down large hailstones on them, and that this killed more than all the Israelites killed. God was truly fighting for his people. So while they were out there with their swords and they were doing battle, God was doing battle literally from the heavens, from the skies, on their behalf. Now for those who haven't been here, um, one of the questions that comes up with passages like this is the ethics and, and the morality behind the warfare that engaged in. And I don't have time to get into that today. We've, we've covered that in a, in a couple other messages. And, and, and go back on the website. You, you can grab those. Um, but that is, it is an area that people talk about. And uh, we, we have talked about that here. And so I'm not going to go back through this here. But the, except to say that what we know is that these people were engaged in a tremendous Un, almost unbelievable by modern standards level of wickedness and 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 behavior that is just absolutely um, dishonoring to God to make God into a God who who enjoys child sacrifice to make God into a uh, a God who thinks that that we should prostitute ourselves in His temples to worship Him. Um, and so their end, just like the end of all of all humanity, is is death. And God's patience had run out with their unwillingness to turn back to Him. And then verses twelve through fourteen, and then going into fifteen a little bit, tell an amazing, amazing story. And this, you know, probably your your Bible section headers this. The sun stands still, or the day the sun stood still, or something like that. And we have this amazing and yet confusing passage here. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord. in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, sun stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ayalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. You has ever seen that email? I, email used to go around like all the way back to the early days of the internet you know that supposedly nasa couldn't figure out you know why their calculations of the sun and moon weren't weren't coming up correctly and and there was this this bible guy who worked at nasa and and he told him oh didn't you read about joshua on the, the day that the sun stood still and then Oh, so if we, we add that into the, the days that we've calculated and that fixes the math problem. Have you guys ever gotten that email? Right, some, some people nodding yes, some are nodding no. Um, you didn't miss much. Um, there, I mean, it, it's possible it happened, but there, there's, no, there's no evidence that this actually ever took place, that NASA ever had a panic about missing days and that there was some scientist there who actually solved the problem for them by pointing to Joshua. Um, And then there's a part about Hezekiah as well, but that's, it's a neat story, but there's no evidence that actually took place, unfortunately. That would be cool, but um, sometimes we're just, we're eager to have our our faith vindicated, that we, uh, I think, create stories to vindicate ourselves. Um, But what did happen here? It's not, it's not as obvious as it seems. It's not an easy passage to interpret what seems at first to be the obvious meaning that that God stopped the sun and the moon in the sky, it's not as obvious the more you dig. Um, Some scholars say, well, the earth must have stopped rotating because we know the earth rotates around the the sun, the moon rotates around the the earth, and so the earth must have stopped rotating. Um, Others say that uh, what it's trying to explain here is that the light stuck around a little bit longer than they expected it to. And that, and that could have happened from you know, any one of number, different scientific phenomenon, perhaps. Um, others think completely opposite perspective. In a way, they think that what's being described here is not the sun standing still, but the sun being darkened out. They think it's a, a solar eclipse, which would have been a, a bad omen. In the ancient Near East. Um, and so that God works a solar eclipse. Uh, others argue, and, and there's a little bit of evidence for the idea that in the ancient Near East, the idea of seeing the sun and moon at the same time, you just know, ever go out in the morning or in the evening, you see the sun, and you see the moon starting to come up, and you can see them both in the sky, that if that, in parts of the cultures of the ancient Near East, uh, if that happened on the 14th of the month, uh, that was a good omen. If you saw that on the 14th, I don't know why, I don't understand the, the reason on the 14th, but that was a good omen. But if you saw it on any other day of the month, that was a bad omen. And, and so so one of the suggestions is that um, what it's talking about here is that, that, that Joshua is asking God that this would be a day where you could see the sun and the moon, and this would be a bad omen for them, and they would understand that Yahweh is the God who... Who rules nature, who rules the universe and, and you know they, they did have sun gods and moon gods and things like that, so and there probably is an element of attacking their their paganism in, in this and there 's no doubt about that um, all these different interpretations of exactly what is the text saying happened the The language is not as clear as we 'd like it to be. Um, and I, I'm not going to dwell on this question as uh, too much because I think it misses the bigger point. Uh, this section probably should not be titled The Day the Sun Stands Still. And, and I'll get to that in a second. My, my personal, ever so slightly, having researched this, I think that this is similar to other poems in, in the Old Testament. That talk about God's fighting on behalf of His people, and sometimes they, um, you know, in Deborah's day, you remember the the story of the Judge Deborah. Uh, it talks about the stars fighting on behalf of Israel, um, and we have places where when God is fighting for His people, just really powerful language is used, um, and I and I think it's it's saying poetically that God is literally in a way, or figuratively, honestly, figuratively bringing all the forces of the universe to bear for the sake of his people. is not to say that God couldn't have stopped the earth's rotation. He absolutely could have. Um, it's a question of what is this passage trying to say, but it's a difficult decision. I'm not going to die on this hill because what I really think is more important is what it says next. There has been no day like it before or since and and people tend to at least if you're like me you tend to read that in connection with the earth or with the sun standing still oh there's no never been a day like that when the when the sun stands still that's not what it says it says there's never been a day like it before or since when the lord heeded the voice of a man for the lord fought for israel and so the section heading shouldn't be the sun stands still it should be the the Lord heeded the voice of a man. That's, that's the amazing thing about this passage. There's never been a day like this, not because God did something amazing in the heavens. There's never been a day like that because God listened to Joshua and did something phenomenal on behalf of his people as a result. And, and to be sure, there were there were other times that God listened to his people, but the The language here is really peculiar, it's really strong, and its language is only used two other times in the whole Bible about Yahweh, about about the God of the universe. And one of those times is is him, him listening and hearing and obeying all of Israel. So there's only one other time when it says that Yahweh obeyed the voice of a man, and that was centuries later. Centuries and centuries later, well after Joshua, would have been written. And so it was a true statement um, that had never happened before and never happened up to the authorship of Joshua. And we only have in Scripture one other time that Yahweh listened to the voice. And it was when Elisha raised, raised a person from the dead. And he prayed to God and said, God, listen to the voice of Elisha. To raise this boy from the dead. That is an amazing thing. I want you to hold on to that for just a moment. Joshua returns and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal, which, if you'll notice, uh, is the, exactly the way the end of the chapter finishes in verse 43. Because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So we have the end of the first window, the beginning of the second window. I'm not going to get into all the details of all the kings and all the cities and all the places in too much detail here. But you have this, this switch now. So we've got the view from heaven. This is Yahweh. fine. Now we're going to get from Joshua's perspective. You know, from the human point of view, and sort of sort of Google Earth style. Have you ever get on Google Earth and you you type in a location and you kind of zoom down in on it. Okay, this is kind of what we're doing. We we've got the view from from far out from the heavens, and we're going to zoom down in now from the human perspective, and we see how the battle is takes place, and it and it's fascinating, right? Because here they were thrown into chaos they're thrown into confusion and and they're uh scared and they're terrified and what do these five kings do they run and hide so they go and they find a cave at machedah which is uh halfway between um hebron and, and lachish if i'm if i'm not mistaken um it's a little bit south and west of of here they hide themselves in a cave One way or another, word gets to Joshua that this is what's going on. Again, espionage and intelligence were pretty strong in the ancient Near East. Somewhere or another, the information gets to Joshua. And what does he do? He rolls a stone in front of the cave. And I imagine there's a couple reasons why he wants to do this. One, you don't want these kings to get out and reconstitute their power. But two, this is probably part of what, when it says God threw them into confusion, when the troops did not have their leader on the battlefield, they were... Throwing the there's, there's plenty of other places in the Old Testament where you can see where this happened, where the king died or the king was captured or the king ran away. And then the troops had no one to lead them and it was a mess. And so their leaders are there. And as long as they're in this cave and they can't get out and they can't lead their troops, these troops are in chaos. They're leaderless. They're they are like sheep without a shepherd. And so they roll the rock in front of it. They lock them into the cave. They imprison them there. And then they go and they absolutely rout these soldiers. And when they're finally done with that, they roll the, the rock away. They bring the, the kings out. They execute them. The very few soldiers that probably got back to the city. So you, you can imagine the cities that are left have very few warriors in them. They don't have a leader. And, and so these, these cities and towns and villages of the south and the west of Palestine... Are sitting ducks. It's open season. And so we see this progression of of Israel, and you can watch it on a map. You can see how they moved through the highlands and down through the mountains and swooped in and out of these different towns. Um, And they absolutely obliterated them. It says that at the end of of chapter 10, So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowlands and the slopes and their kings. He left nothing. Verse 41, And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And he captured all these kings in our land at one time. This was a huge swath of land. And probably by at one time, it probably means sort of in one campaign, in one effort, not like in one moment or one day, but one military campaign. And when the military campaign was done, which probably took days or weeks or maybe even months, they come and they, they retreat back to their home base at Gilgal. But the Kadesh Barnea was was deep south, almost to the Sinai Peninsula. Gaza was a city on the, the southeast coast of the Mediterranean Sea near the area that we would call the Gaza Strip today. It's the same, same name. Um, Gibeon, obviously, is the city right near Jerusalem they allied with. All the way down to Goshen. Goshen! Goshen is the land that Israel came from in the land of Egypt before the Exodus. This is an enormous swath of land. Jerusalem fell, these kings were gone, and the land was open to them. And even though these were probably still difficult, bloody conflicts, you can see, you can hear the, the sense in which um, it was methodical, it was relatively quick, it was relatively easy, and, and we're getting the picture painted that God is with them. What both of these windows show us, whether we want to look at it from the, the divine perspective or we want to look at it from the human perspective, what they both want to come back and tell us is that the Lord was fighting for Israel Because God fights for His people. God fights for His people. He doesn't leave them alone. He doesn't abandon them. Even when they make mistakes, even when they sin, even when they enter into foolish treaties like the Israelites did with the Gibeonites, God fights for His people. One of the fascinating things that comes out of this passage is is Joshua making a request to God. God, fight for your people. Destroy these enemies before us. And it says, God obeyed Joshua. Joshua, as we've talked about before, he's, he's the leader of God's people. In, in many ways, he's, he's a prophet. But he's also the In many ways, he's the king of the people. He he marches them to battle and he tells them to stay. He leads them in religious ceremonies. And we've talked about this before. Joshua prefigures his namesake, Yeshua, Jesus. He prefigures Jesus for us. He's a a type of the Messiah who would come. He, He points Israel, he points God's people to the type of leader that we need. And God always hears his son, Jesus. The, the, the passage in John chapter eleven, and and, and Jesus' friend Lazarus has died, and his his sisters, Lazarus' sisters, come to him and say, Jesus, you know. Raise him from his dead, and, and Jesus allows Lazarus to die. Jesus almost intentionally waits for Lazarus to die. And they took the stone away. Jesus told them to remove the stone from the, from the tomb of Lazarus, and they said, Jesus, it's going to stink. Don't do that. And, and Jesus says, just do it. And, and Jesus says this prayer. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you... Sent me, and of course, he then commands Lazarus to come out of the tomb, and he does. The Son of God always has the ear of God, the Father always hears the Son. And so, here's the cool thing if we are in Christ, if we are part of the body of Christ. then we are incorporated into and part of this Jesus who is, has the Father's ear. Jesus who, the scriptures say, pleads for us. He he intercedes for us from heaven. He prays to the Father on our behalf. He is our intermediary. He is our go-between. And because we are in Jesus, God is always fighting for us because God is always fighting for his son and obeying his son because they are one. Jesus prays that we would be one even as they are one. And so if we are in Christ, we have confidence that God is on our side for his sake. Not for our sake. Don't get it wrong. Don't don't get the order mixed up. God is not on our side to do whatever we want to go and do to accomplish the things that we've set out to accomplish for our glory's sake. But to the extent that we are in Christ and that we are about the things of God and we are about the things of his glory, then God is fighting on our behalf. And we know that there will be losses along the way. We know there will be um, mistakes along the way. We know that there will be failures along the way. But even as Joshua could be assured to be strong, to be courageous, because these enemies will not stand before you, so we, if we are Christians, if we are in Christ, can have the confidence to know that whatever the enemy, Satan, wants to do to us whatever he wants to throw against us, it will not stand against us. It must fall. It must come down. Because God will win. And God will destroy his enemies. And if we are in Christ, his enemies are our enemies. His victory is our victory. The thing we can't forget when we read through Joshua is this is not a story of Israel's victories over the Canaanites. This is a story of God's victory that happens to be on behalf of Israel, that happens to have a benefit to Israel, that happens to be for their good, but ultimately for God's glory. And so it is for us. Don't think that when you face battles in this life, spiritual battles in this life, that this is all about you. It's about God. And if you stand strong with God, if you, if you are in Christ, then you will come out victorious. And it will be to your good, but it will be for God's glory. But make sure you're aligned correctly. Make sure you are aligned in Christ. We already read one story of Achan who wasn't aligned with Israel, who wasn't aligned with Christ. He looked like an Israelite, but he wasn't an Israelite because in his heart and in his mind and in his passions, he was aligned with Canaan. He was aligned with the false deities and the false gods and the idolatry and the greed of the land that he was entering. And so we know that there will be those who think themselves a part of God's people who really are not. And so the question then becomes, where are you? Do you stand in Christ? And we know that we are called into Christ by the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for our sins, that if we place our faith in Him, we place our trust in Him, We surrender our lives and our priorities and our goods and our families and the things that we hold dear for his sake by faith. And we are incorporated into a new people, a people that will be victorious for our good, but for God's glory. Are you in that number? Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word and thank you for the way that you move through history and work it to your glory's sake. God, give us eyes to see how you're even working history now for your glory, that we might join in your mission, that we might join in your movement. May we find our good in your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.